Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just wanted to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM for their continued support of Diversity Podcast, publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay on top of the very latest DNI debate. You may want to check out City AM's own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion for the city, because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Kamal Munir and Lord Billamoria of Chelsea. Dr. Kamal Munir has been teaching at Cambridge Judge Business School since 2000, and his focus lies firmly on technological and business model disruptions at both the corporate and at societal levels, extending out even further to consider the competitive advantages of nations. Widely sought by industry and academic journals for his insights into organisational and technology changes, Dr. Munir has consulted for the State Bank of Pakistan, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, and he's advised governments of the UK, Pakistan and Nigeria. Kamal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Julia. It's great to be here with uh, Lord Billimoria and yourself. Lord Karen Billamoria is arguably best known today as President of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI. In 2006, Karen Billamoria was appointed the Lord Billamoria of Chelsea, making him the first ever Zoroastrian Parsi to sit in the House of Lords. He is founder of Cobra Beer and today chairman of the Cobra Beer Partnership Limited. And in terms of his academic badges of honour, these include Honorary Fellow of the Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, former chair of the advisory board of the Judge Business School, Cambridge University, and in 2014, he was installed as the seventh chancellor of the University of Birmingham, making him the first Indian-born chancellor of a Russell Group University in Great Britain. I should also add that he is an honorary group captain in the 601st Squadron Royal Air Force. Lord Billamoria, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you, Julia, and with you, Kamal. Gentlemen, let's get straight into the discussion. And the first question I always ask all our guests is I'm very keen to hear what you're focused on right now. Lord Benamoria, can I come to you first of all? What a year this has been uh, with COVID, a pandemic that came from nowhere. None of us predicted this would happen. And there are events in the world's history which change uh, the world's history. And then we go back in, in, in living memory. For me, for example, uh, would be you know, 9-11. Nobody predicted that. When that happened in 2001, it changed history. It changed the way we travel. It changed so many things. Similarly, the global financial crisis, when that happened, very few people predicted, less than five people, I think, in the whole world, economists actually predicted it. And that had a huge impact on the globe and all of us. And now we come to this. And this, to me, is just extraordinary because it's a health crisis and economic crisis combined that has hit the whole world. Just about every country in the world has been affected by it. So looking ahead, business has had a huge amount to deal with. And dealing with the pandemic, Brexit, we left the European Union on the 31st of January, and we now have to deal with having left what is going to happen with transitioning out of the European Union 
and with, with all that needs to be built on uh, to make sure that we make the most of our relationship going forward. Uh, the EU makes up 45% of our trade and is very, very important to us. And of course, the world has changed for Britain in terms of the global aspects of it and the trade deals that we will now be doing and have already started doing uh, around the world. However, this is in the backdrop of a pandemic where we had a lockdown for three and a half months, which has caused huge amounts um, of financial burden um, and lots of other health issues, mental issues that we've all come together as a country. We started to come out of it in the summer and now we're in the midst of this second wave, uh, which is really, really challenging. So the uncertainty continues, a sense of ambiguity continues. And I'm personally confident that in 2021, the vaccine will be implemented. And I'm confident that mass testing, affordable mass testing can be implemented. And uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then well, as long as we retain the businesses and retain the jobs, and that's the most important thing because long-term unemployment, we've been squashing the curve of the virus. We've also got to squash the curve of unemployment and make sure that there isn't long-term unemployment. And also for the youth, particularly, that the youth have been affected hugely by this virus, whether it's through exams or whether it's a disruption of universities, it's their future. So we've got to make sure that, that we bounce back in a resilient, sustainable manner quickly, and I'm confident we can. Really interesting to hear your thoughts, particularly about, you know, the path ahead and the road that we're navigating in so many different ways. And, and Kamal, you know, I mentioned in the opening remarks about how you think about corporate change, organisational change, different operating structures as well. And uh, I'd love to hear what you're focused on right now and particularly you know, how your students are engaging at uh, this particular moment in time. Thank you, Julia. Um, so I think uh, Lord Billimoria has already pointed to a number of things you know, that have characterized this year that we have been living in, 2020, which will, you know, which, you know, it'll take some time to forget. But in addition to that, I would also like to point out the effect that BLM has had uh, on everything. COVID, of course, tends to overshadow everything, you know, that happened in 2020. But, you know, BLM, I think, is a significant event that we also need to uh, mention here. The Black Lives Matter movement wasn't just about the outpouring of rage that we saw on the streets, wasn't just about, you know, one black person getting killed at the hands of an American police officer. I think this was pent up for a long time. And uh, it was pent up because of the persistence of inequality you know, that, has, uh, that has been taking place, that has occurred over the years, over, over decades, in fact. In fact, if you look at the numbers, the disparity, especially in the U.S., where all this started, in the U.S., the disparity between black families and white families you know, is pretty much the same as it was in 1968. White families tend to have about 10 times the wealth and the income of black families. And of course, in terms of segregation, in terms of health outcomes, in terms of social problems, you know, with everything. So obviously what we have done over the past few years hasn't really worked. So that has, you know, luckily, and, uh, you know, the positive side of that is that luckily it has spurred people on. It has lifted the lid from a number of things that we just took for granted and we never really scrutinized very much. And so people have sprung into action and so have we in the university. I mean, we had already been doing things in terms of diversity, in terms of inclusion, in terms of inequality in the university. 
but this has also put a spring in our step. And as you know, for the past few years, we have been seeking greater race equality at Cambridge. As things stand, we suffer from the same problem that we witness in most other organizations in the West, which is that we are unable to get more diversity at the top. And given how deeply institutionalized things tend to be, this is a fight, of course, that continues. So we are collecting data. We are confronting all the different departments of the university with that data, preparing dashboards, indicating where they are, what progress they are making. At the same time, we are making diversity more visible at the university. It is now a thing, unlike in the distant past. And BAME students, of course, have also played an important role in this, you know, as has PLM, of course, right? They are the wind in our, in our sails. And we are also pursuing greater diversity at the college level in the university. So we are trying to get more BAME fellows in colleges because our students in colleges are telling us that they want more pastoral care from people who look like them. Okay. And, uh, and we will just continue this fight for the remaining year. It's really interesting and it very much chimes with much of the discussion we're having in the industry about the importance of visibility and the role of role models as well, which is uh, it's fascinating to hear your thoughts on that. And Lord Benamoria, I know you're really focused at the moment on a particular campaign, the Change the Race Ratio campaign. We'd love to hear more about uh, what you're focused on. Tell us about the campaign. Yes, when I was appointed as the incoming president of the CBI, in June 2019, you, you start as vice president for a year before you take over as president. And I'm the first ethnic minority president in the 60-year history of the CBI, the Confederate British, British entity, the most powerful, influential, largest business organization in the UK. And our director general, our outgoing who's just, just, just left, Dame Carolyn Fairburn, was the first woman director general. It took 55 years uh, to get there. And, and I thought, well, in this position as the first ethnic minority president, I really want to champion ethnic minority participation across business. And how am I going to do this? And I started planning for this from June 2019. And we studied the landscape and we saw and that this is well before Black Lives Matter. And early in 2020, we saw that there was a review of the Parker Review. And the Parker Review had taken place in 2016-17 about ethnic minorities on boards of FTSE 100, FTSE 250 companies. And they set a target that by 2021, there should be at least one ethnic minority board member of every FTSE 100 company. And by 2024, there should be at least one ethnic minority board member of every FTSE 250 company. And when they did the review in early 2020, they found that the actual statistics were way, way away. It was only... 37% of FTSE 100 companies still did not have even one ethnic minority board member. And in FTSE 250 companies, uh, 69% of FTSE 250 companies did not have even one ethnic minority board member. So we said, well, why don't we champion the Parker Review? Why reinvent the wheel? The 30% club, what the 30% club did one of my Cambridge University contemporaries named Helena Morrissey, who's now joined me in the House of Lords, when Lord Davies had the review of women on boards, the target for women on boards is very, you've got a 50% target if you want 50%. So they said, let's at least try the 30%. And so Helena and 
uh, group of people got together and formed the 30% Club to champion the Davies Report. And I don't think we today would be at 33% of women on boards. Today we'd be where there's only one FTSE 350 company that doesn't have a woman uh, on their board if it hadn't been for the 30% Club. So we said we will start a similar movement, but we will not call it the 15% Club, which is the proportion of ethnic minorities in the UK, because we want this to be a global movement. And for it to be a global movement, it should apply anywhere in the world. We want people to take up this and champion this. So we called it change the race ratio. And we've got four things that we want to do. One is to increase racial and ethnic diversity amongst board members and to achieve help achieve the Parker Review targets. The second is to increase racial and ethnic diversity in senior leadership at the EXCO and EXCO minus one with stretch targets to publish them within 12 months of taking the commitment. So people sign up to change the race ratio. We've always got many, many companies and firms, the big four accountants. We've got Microsoft and Aviva. Deloitte have been really helpful to us. Brunswick, who helped us a lot. Lots of companies have signed up. EY, and I could go on, the list goes on, of companies that have signed up and they make this commitment. And then they want to be, we want them to be transparent on their actions. So to publish a clear action plan alongside targets and share progress in the annual report of the company website. And in addition, disclose the ethnicity pay gap by 2022 at the latest. Then the fourth one is to create an inclusive culture in which talent from all diversities can thrive. So that's focusing on recruitment and talent development processes to drive a more diverse pipeline, data collection and analysis, fostering safe, open and transparent dialogue with mentoring and support and uh, challenging conventional thinking and working with a more diverse set of suppliers and partners, including minority-owned businesses. And this is the whole point, that people talk about DNI, diversity and inclusion. In fact, I was reading a paper by a Harvard professor, and I'm sure Maurice says exactly the same thing. To explain the difference between diversity and inclusion. Diversity, yes, you can have diversity and have these people on the boards as we're targeting or in business, but diversity on its own is useless without inclusion. It's the inclusion that makes the diversity actually work. And, and so it's essential. So that's what we're trying to achieve. And we got off to a flying start. And, and, and I've been overwhelmed by the unanimous support uh, that we've received across the board. And as you know, uh, we're very focused on the world of financial services, both in the UK and internationally as well. And I wondered if you had a message for the, for the listeners. You know, if you had a call to action, what would that be? Well, the call to action is sign up to change the race ratio. And we're starting with the board level, and I'm a great believer in role models creating inspiration because their achievement creates inspiration. Inspiration creates aspiration. Aspiration leads to achievement, which in turn creates inspiration. It's a virtuous circle. And of course, there is a business case for this as well. Not only is this the right thing to do, but McKinsey's research recently has shown that those companies that actually embrace ethnic and cultural diversity the top quartile of the companies outperformed the fourth by 36% in profitability. I mean, it makes business sense to do it as well. And, and Kamal, can I bring you in here as well? Because as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, you know, you think about organisational change and societal change as well. And when you're looking at the world of financial services, I mean, what compelling reasons would you give to the audience about why it's important to get involved and why, why sign up? 
Right, Julia. I think I think this is an excellent initiative. You know, I mean, the Parker Review's findings were quite shocking, frankly, and we are all very proud of Karan for addressing it right away, because this needed to be addressed for a long time, and so we are really glad that Karan has come on board and you know started taking it the scruff of the neck. In terms of the targets that the Parker Review sets, I think you know, I mean, they are extremely reasonable, and uh, to to start us off with, you know, at least one racially and ethnically diverse board member you know in the FTSE 100 by end 2021 one ethnically and racially diverse board member in the FTSE 250 by 2024 and i was really glad to hear karan that you know he doesn't stop at that because often these kind of things can be a fig leaf right i mean okay let's get one person of color in the board and we are done right? for a long time we did that by including one white woman in the board. And we thought we were done. We have ticked the box and let's move on. And we never addressed the inclusion side, as Karan mentioned. And this is also something that Goldman Sachs, right, in the city was criticized for when they said we are not going to take any company public, right, which does not have at least one woman or one racially diverse member in the board. But we can't have board membership cover up for lack of diversity in the rest of the organization. And that's where, you know, uh, Karan's point about the culture is important. Because if we look at, you know, financial markets, you know, a lot of the data is available on America, for example. And in U.S. finance companies, what you see is only 2.4% of executive committee members, 1.4% of managing directors, and 1.4% of senior portfolio managers are Black. Goldman itself, just 4% of executives, senior officials and managers are black, which is up from, you know, 2.7% in 2015. At City, 2% of black men and zero black women are in this, uh, in this category. We do know that the proportion of black students who join banks at entry level is significantly higher, which begs the question, what happens in between? Why do they drop off the radar? And so, Companies, it's very good to see that thanks to initiatives, you know, like what Karan has said, you know, these organizations are beginning to take this more seriously. I mean, what what we do see, what research does show us is that black people in banking are more welcome in back and middle office roles, not in the front of house roles. Performance measures in banking can be subjective, depend upon managers' judgment. And this is something that is very important because when we grade assignments in the university, they are blinded for us. We don't know whose assignment we are grading. There's no name, there's no number on them. I mean, there's a code that is given to every assignment. And then somebody else, a third party, brings together the code with you know, the actual name of, of the student. So we never know what we are giving. Organizations are not like that. When you are evaluating your subordinates, you know, this process is not blinded. And we know from research that if it is made more transparent, if you are publicly accountable for what grades or what evaluations you're giving to your subordinates, bias tends to decrease substantially in these things. So we need to bring more transparency into, into the culture. The other thing, of course, that we notice, especially in the in the finance sector, is that clients can be biased, right? And they they drop subtle hints that they would rather see a person from a particular race or a particular you know community. They would rather deal with them rather than with somebody else. And that is also something that we really need to push back on, because 
it happens in hospitals too. So I work with the NHS too. And, you know, sometimes patients come in and they say, we'd only rather be seen by a white doctor, please. So do we expect hospitals to yield to those kind of requests? No. And so, you know, similarly, firms in the city should take a hard line on that. And they should push back on these things, whether they are direct, indirect, however subtle there might be. And we also know that the higher that we rise in an organization, the more race seems to matter. And we also need to reverse that. So this is all thinking. This is all culture. We also know that if we do appoint a woman or a member of a racial minority to the top job in any organizations, the commitment that the top white males tend to have, you know, to their jobs, to the organization seems to drop. So there's very interesting and eye-opening research out there on all these things. And we need to start looking at it again. And we need to start scrutinizing what is going on in these organizations. The topic of culture has come up a lot, actually. And something we're definitely, definitely thinking about. And, you know, we talk about leadership at the very highest level, you know, the board level, the exco, the exco minus one. And, uh, and I just wonder and constantly whether there are new, we need new models of leadership. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think one of the things we found a lot is that you have to get very comfortable with the conversation about race. And a lot of people we've talked to just say we're fundamentally deeply uncomfortable by talking about race. And I wonder what advice you'd give businesses and leaders to think about how to engage with the diversity conversation. You know, where does it begin? Is it an HR role? Is it that the senior executive team needs to take it onto their tables? You know, what, love your thoughts on you know, where we should focus. With all these things, it comes from the top. It, it, it's the chairman and the chief executive. If this is a priority for them, it will happen. I, I can speak from experience. And what I always say about this change the race ratio is I practice what I preach. And for nine years, I was the senior independent director of Booker, the largest wholesaler in the country. When I joined the board, it was a 300 million pound valuation AIM listed company. And I was the first diversity on that board. It was all white males. And I came in on the board as a senior independent director. And then we recruited one woman board member. And then a few years later, another woman board member. So suddenly from zero diversity, we had three. And that company went from an aimless to 300 million pound valuation company to nine years later, just before we sold and merged with Tesco to a four, almost 4 billion valuation, almost FTSE 100, literally just below FTSE 100. And so I saw the power of that diversity and the performance, and we're talking about performance through the credit crunch, through the financial crisis, through the Great Recession, and still achieving this amazing performance. So I've seen diversity work. I've seen it in my own business in Cobra Beer, which I founded from scratch. And, and, and when before we merged with Molson Coors, if you just looked at the independent Cobra in those days, it was like a mini United Nations. We had people from so many different nationalities, and it created a real us and this diversity of thought and diversity of culture and diversity of thinking and input made us that much more dynamic and creative and innovative. It was brilliant. And it was just the most fabulous atmosphere. So I've lived this and I've seen the benefit of it. And it's wonderful to hear your personal experiences. Thank you so much for sharing those. And come on, um, you know, you're talking to organisations all the time. What, what advice do you give about organisational leadership structures? 
Well, I mean, there, there's a wide variety of advice and from top to bottom. So, I mean, let me start with, with the top. Lord Birimoria is absolutely right that it must come from the top. Unfortunately, it doesn't always come from the top. In a lot of organizations that I see, the impetus for change has come from the bottom, in fact. And where employees at low levels of the organization are the ones who have pushed, you know, with the help of the BLM movement, which is outside, which is on TV screens and so on, you know, push their superiors in that organization to do something about this. And what I have also found is that a lot of the CEOs were not properly equipped to actually lead on this front. They may have been very good as far as it comes to, you know, just the financial bottom line, but what to do about, you know, inclusion, equality, diversity in the organization, they were just way behind the curve on this. So first of all, you know, this, you know, Erica James is now um, uh, the dean of the Wharton Business School. And she once wrote a paper a few years ago in which she said that often minorities are given glass cliff assignments. So when they are appointed to the top, when there is a higher likelihood of the organization not doing well. So the job is more risky. So that's when they are appointed. We need to move beyond that and we need to be proactive in appointing minorities to these roles or anyone else, frankly, you know, who is equipped to lead on this front and not everyone, uh, not everyone is. And um, so this is, you know, again, there's so much that needs to be done in, in businesses. I mean, staying silent or being strategically colorblind, for example, where I have met CEOs who have said, well, I just treat everyone the same. That does not help, actually, treating everyone the same, because everyone in the organization does not have the same lived experience, does not have the same opportunities coming their way, does not have the same social capital or the social network, which allows them to come across, you know, uh, different opportunities and bigger opportunities. Defensiveness, you know, that we we are doing fine, you know, does not seem to work. And debating this thing in meetings that have, you know, your superiors present there and looking at you intently. And a lot of people are extremely reluctant to voice these things in organizations because there's also a hierarchy in organizations. So we just assume that everyone is free to speak their mind. People are not. They don't want to go against uh, the current. Then again, what biz- a lot of businesses, what they also, you know, especially on Wall Street, you know, it used to be the norm where firms would require new hires to sign arbitration contracts, agreeing not to join class actions. That makes accountability more difficult. So we need to dispense with that practice. What I also tell them is diversity training is just the go-to for a lot of people, but it does not seem to work very much. In about a thousand studies, it comes out that people soon forget the right answers you know, on bias trainings. In fact, there was an article in HBR just the other day by Frank Dobbin, you know, which basically points out that the positive effects of diversity training rarely last beyond a day or two. And it can actually activate bias or spark a backlash. So there are, there are a number of different things. I mean, so what does t- tend to work and what I advise companies to do is appoint diversity task forces. Right? Make it their job 
to hit the targets, you know, such as the ones that uh, uh, Lord Billamoria has been setting uh, for UK businesses. Of course, you know, many businesses are beginning to expand their recruitment to minorities. Mentoring, mentoring seems to work. And not every organization has that. And turn those mentors that you have into champions. Reward them on how well their mentees do. Integration seems to work. Integration, and this evidence is as old as the Second World War. You know, it's a, there's a very interesting story. In the Second World War, the Americans were not expecting many casualties. So they were not sending black people into active combat to begin with. When they experienced a higher level of casualties than they were expecting, they started to send some black people into active combat. And what they discovered very quickly was that battalions where blacks and whites were fighting as equals for the same goal or for the same cause, the level of racism came down substantially in there. So exposure matters. Working together matters. That decreases these bias and and, uh, tendencies of discrimination. Transparency, social accountability matters. So at the end of the day, we have to make it all meaningful, right? We cannot just invite a consultant and do a two-hour diversity workshop or, you know, do a diversity training workshop and then off we go back to business as usual. We need to engage our people in organizations in these conversations and make them champions of inclusion. So I was mentioning earlier about you know, the conversation about retrenchment, which I think is a, is a show in and of itself. So, so I, I don't really want to get into the detail of that. But there is something that deeply concerns me. And it's a question I'm putting to all our guests. As we head into economically tough times, there is a risk that diversity and inclusion will fall down the corporate agenda. And what I'd love to hear from you as we go into literally the last few minutes of the show is to to inspire us with reasons why diversity and inclusion must remain high. Kamal, let me come to you first of all. Right, Julia. I think uh, Lord Billimoria already pointed out that McKinsey study, which shows that, you know, diverse corporates, actually corporations actually tend to do better, even financially. So there's a business logic to doing that. And of course, there's a social and moral logic to doing that. Because what we also know from research is that inequality hurts everyone. Societies which experience a higher level of inequality tend to have greater level of social and health problems. The levels of incarceration are high. The levels of depression are high. The level of lack of trust in society are high, so we have to rely on more policing and more uh, coercive methods and so on. But we also know that downturns do tend to hit the more vulnerable harder. So we must take steps to protect them. So again, strategic color blindness, you know, is uh, is not the answer. And we also need to, and, and these these people, the more vulnerable are the people who this, this, your economic position in society tends to coincide with your race, at least in the UK. And what we saw was a higher level of vulnerability to COVID as well amongst uh, the VAME populations. And that is something that we must really keep on the agenda because COVID has lifted the lid from a number of problems that we have been living with for a long, long time. And now that the lid is off, let's actually do something about that. Every poll is showing that the sentiment is with you know, positive change uh, amongst people. They think that racism is a problem. They think discrimination is a problem. So let's strike while the iron is hot. 
it does feel like now is the time, as you say, that awareness is high. Organizations are, are uh, really paying attention and thinking about how they remain competitive and, and, and outperform. Uh, and, and also considering the most vulnerable, which I think there's a very interesting point you were making there. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Lord Budimori, if I could ask you for, for your final thoughts on why diversity inclusion must remain high on corporate agendas. Now more than ever, diversity and inclusion has to be paramount. And this is, this is not the time, you know, if we look at the past, in previous economic downturns, diversity and inclusion efforts have stalled. I mean, that's, that's the reality. But currently, we're seeing the opposite trend. Nearly four in 10 firms have told us at the CBI that they have either slightly increased or significantly increased their focus on diversity and inclusion over the last 12 months, while the remaining 60, 62% reported no change. So this is not a time to be complacent at all. And if we're seeking to, as I said, right at the outset, to come out of this really strong, well, you know, if we want to build back better, then diversity inclusion needs to be at the heart of the recovery agenda. And the health issues we've seen, as Kamala said, are much more susceptible. The ethnic minorities have been to the COVID disease. Those are facts. It's twice as much if you look at the statistics. And whether it's access to finance, we've got to make sure their whole issues about the British Business Bank have conducted some revealing research on access to finance for ethnic minority businesses. We've got to be on top of all this. We've got to champion diversity inclusion because it's good for British business. And my colleague, Ruby McGregor-Smith in the House of Lords, the McGregor-Smith review highlighted that the benefit to the UK economy by having diversity and inclusion and ethnic minority representation in British business would see an estimated 24 billion pounds a year added to the economy. That's 1.3% of GDP. And I think, by the way, that's an underestimate. It's much more than that. So gentlemen, it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you both for joining us. Kamal, it's been a joy to have you on the show. Thank you very much for this opportunity to be with you and uh, Lord Billimoria. And Lord Billimoria, thank you for your time. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Kamal. And as always, to all our listeners of Diversity Podcast, I've been Julia Streets. Thank you for listening. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.